Good morning. You are listening to KPOO San Francisco 89.5 and on the World Wide Web at KPOO.com. This is Prison Focus Radio. Slavery is back. In fact, it was never abolished. The 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution abolished slavery, except in prison. At the current rate of incarceration, by the year 2010, the majority of all African-American men between 18 and 40 will be in prison. The state as their captor. It's going to take people who are willing to fight, not people who want to negotiate with the enemy. Deal with 
All right, beautiful people. I want to thank you for joining me here this morning. I am your host, Nube Brown of Prison Focus Radio here on KPOO San Francisco 89.5. So we are going to spend the rest of the hour um, hearing a tribute to O.G. Shaka, a longtime freedom fighter, uh, very well known uh, to uh, the community, black liberation movements, as well as those who are a part of um, Black August Memorial and Black August Organizing, uh, because he is the, or was the keeper of this incredible, um, the archives of this incredible movement around uh, Black August, um, as as well as many other things that you will hear um, in this tribute. He did pass on to the ancestors um, in the later part of April. We will also be hearing some commentary from Abdul Olubala Shakur, who is uh, the the wise, intelligent, esteemed mind behind the indictment of the prison industrial slave complex. What that we have been reading, we will be hearing while we'll be reading the last of that indictment in this hour as well. So uh, get ready, stay tuned, and we will be back in just a few. All right, we are going to go ahead and start with Abdul Olubala Shakur, who is the who has created the concept for the indictment of the state and the prison and its prison industrial slave complex. So we're going to listen to him talking about um, about solitary confinement and really what it was about and why uh, um, these freedom fighters, new African freedom fighters especially, were subjected to this torture for decades. All right, here we go. Abdul Olubala Shakur. Still trying, uh, what I'm going to do is briefly speak on solitary confinement. Uh, I recall doing a hunger strike at Pelican Bay State Prison. We had three hunger strikes, two in 2011, one in 2013, fighting against solitary confinement. And the government was saying that solitary confinement no longer exists in the United States. And many people within society that's not part of the prison movement, you know, they supported that in there. It was able to uh, agree with that crap because they lack of understanding what is solitary confinement. Solitary confinement has continuously to evolve, especially with the new technology. A lot of people think solitary confinement is about just putting a person in a cell and isolating them from everyone else. And that's not true. If you look at Alcatraz, Alcatraz was a prison that was isolated from everywhere else. But inside that prison, they had tiers, two tiers, and it's like 20 cells on each tier. Well, that didn't take away from the fact that they was in solitary. When the federal prison at Marion was built, it had long tiers, one floor with multiple cells on it. It didn't take away from being solitary confinement or isolation. The method of solitary confinement has become sophisticated, and the technology now has allowed them to do so and apply solitary confinement in many different ways. For example, me and my comrades, I'm speaking about the New African Revolutionary guerrillas. They had us housed in Pelican Bay State Prison, and we was in solitary confinement. I spent 32 plus years in solitary confinement. But what they did was, even though you had eight cell in a pod, you had four on top, four on bottom, they would like take each of us, my comrades, and put us by ourselves in every pod. And then in the pod, all you have is white and Mexican prisoners. 
And at that time, there's no communication among the races. So they were able to effectively isolate us because here we are. And most of the whites at that time were racist. So we had no communication with them, nor do we desire to have any communication with them. So you have like a situation that is further isolating a specific target. And this is another example of how uh, the, the, the issue of solitary confinement has become, has become more sophisticated and strategical. Because now they can single out one individual and isolate that individual. And that's what they did with me and my comrades. We were the only one in California, from Corcoran to Pelican State Prison, that was in solitary confinement solely due to our beliefs, our revolutionary beliefs, simple as that. And they were able to further isolate us by when they, when you look at Pelican Bay, like I said, they got eight corridors. I mean, they got uh, eight pods. And what they did, they put each one of us in a pod by ourselves. So there was no other new Africans in that pod. We're just whites and Mexicans. So that prevented us from communicating. Then, IGI, internal, uh, the investigation unit, the game investigation unit, and other uh, security forces, they prevented us from having visits. Revolutionary degrees, my brother. It prevented us from having visits and correspondence with the outside world to further isolate us. This is a form of solitary confinement. So when we're trying to explain to people, solitary confinement is not just putting a person in a lock-up cell and shutting the door. You can have 10 people in a cell and still be subjected to solitary confinement or the effects or ramification of solitary confinement. And what people need to understand that when this is done, society pays the price more than anyone else because at some point in time, you got to release us. At some point in time, you got to release these brothers and sisters. And what then? When these individuals have been isolated, they have been desensitized. You don't lose your humanity as long as you believe in something that's greater than oneself, right? And the fact that we did have our humanity and maintain our humanity has nothing to do with the system. You know, it's who we are. And by putting this in isolation and further discover, we discover ourselves and our true self. Well, we have our humanity. You know, and you have to fight for it because they'll take everything from you. The whole purpose of solitary confinement is to, is to demoralize you, to dehumanize you. That's the whole purpose of solitary confinement, to make you become what they want you to be. And one of the things we've done in isolation, we made that prison cell our library, our school, our think tank, our gym. We made it the way we wanted to make it. And when you do that, you control your space. When you don't do that, they control the space and they can dictate all the particulars. If they become a cell, you're going to become a prisoner. If you make your classroom, you become a student. If you make your think tank, you're serving the interests of the community. You can make this cell the way you wanted to make it. And that's what we did in isolation. I spent, like I said, 32 plus years in solitary confinement, right? But those isolation cells became our think tank. It became my library, my study. And we do this in the interest and service of our people in our community, right? Uh, one of the things Solitary Confinement also does is, is maintain the criminal mentality. It maintain that same destructive mentality for the purpose of facilitating this pipeline from poverty to prison. One of the, things, one of the reasons why we pose a major threat because many of us have successfully rid ourselves of that mentality. So we were encouraging brothers and sisters to relinquish that criminal mentality, that gangster mentality, and fight in the service of your community. And they didn't like that because they contrary or contradict their bottom line. The prison does the slave complex is a multi-billion dollar industry. So what we were saying, what we were doing contradicts that. And so you pose more of a serious threat. If we were out here talking about killing other blacks, robbing, stealing, selling drugs, 
all of us would have been out of prison by now. I've been in prison over 40 years. I was due to get out 20, 30 years ago. But that's part of being part of the struggle. I don't snivel and cry. When I joined the struggle and when I became a revolutionary, I grew up in the struggle, so I don't do no snivel and crying. It is what it is, right? I will continue to fight for my release and the release of other brothers and sisters who rightfully deserve to be released, you know? Because I'm one of those brothers that I'm not going to sacrifice everything for an individual who's just going to go out there and victimize the community or perpetuate their mentality as they destroy our community. I'm not going to never do that. You know, my focus have always been brothers and sisters who are going to be committed to the struggle, committed to the uplift and building of our community. So solitary confinement is designed, was designed. You know, even though in California it don't exist because it took us 40, 50 years to defeat it, you know, but the struggle is not over with. Because we went from solitary confinement and they put us in general population, but there's also a continued campaign to keep us in prison. And that's what we're fighting at right now, right? But I think people need to understand the impact. Whatever happened in prison is going to happen out there. You know, and that's what you need to understand. Whatever happened in prison is going to be affected out there. And that's what you need to understand. And that's why you have to get involved. You are the primary stakeholder in this event, in this prison does slave conflicts. And they are, and the system understands this. Just like when you, they have laws right now to target for early release. They target individuals that they know who recidivism rate is almost 100%. They target individuals who've been down in three years, four years, five years, still got that mentality, release them, knowing damn well when they get out there, they're going to do the same thing, come back in, and then the government and media use that as propaganda. If you look at the government statistics, both federal and state, everyone, anyone that's done over 25 years, that's over 50 years old, the recidivism rate among that group is 0.5, damn near non-existent. They have the lowest recidivism rate of any class. And that's according to their own statistics. So why not target that particular class when you know for damn well when they get out, they're not coming back? If your interest is really about minimizing crime, protection, and safety of society, why not release those prisoners who have done 20 years or more? Release those prisoners who have served 25 years or more and at the age of 50 years or older when your own statistics say that we are the less likely to reoffend if it's really about safety and security of the community. That right there tell you they're on a different trip. It has nothing to do with that. That right there tell you is all about that dollar, bottom dollar. The prison does slave complex is a multi-billion dollar industry. Without us, the number one commodity, it cannot survive. Without us, they cannot exist. But we can make no excuses, you know, for not doing the right thing in the service of our people. It's not about us. You know, and we have to get beyond that. Uh, capitalism breeds selfishness. Capitalism breeds individualism. It survives off individualism. It survives off of selfishness. You know, without that, it cannot survive. We as a people have always been a social people. We have always believed in unity. You know, and that was read, that was eradicated completely from us during the years of slavery. You know, and it's important for us to understand that, you know. We are a socialist people. You can call it what you want to call it. If you look at corporate economics, collective work responsibilities, which are ancient principles, that is a form of socialism. You know, and we've always been there. And if we go back to that, which is our reality, I don't care if you celebrate Kwanzaa or not, because I don't. You know, but the principles itself has nothing to do with Kwanzaa. The principles itself existed already before Kwanzaa. You know, they are inherent in who we are. But we live in a capitalist society that has successfully beaten the dog out of us, you know, 
and made us selfish and individualistic and materialistic, you know. She never had a real man till she had a revolutionary. And the real men got vocabulary. Vocabulary. Let's rise up. Who gon' rise up? Let's rise she up. She never had a real man till she had a revolutionary. And the real men got vocabulary. Vocabulary. Let's rise up. Who gon' rise up? Let's rise up. I'm the man right here Many, many faces when the camera get to flicking Black Volkswagen keep you at a distance New world about to begin it High socialized, high handle business Walking on the sun, I'm really, really dripping I ain't never been afraid Friend of competition, daddy about to raise Another politician, daddy I'ma change My very own condition, move by example How I show the people, revolution in my speakers New eyes, solidary dad With a solitary pass she never had a real man till she had a revolutionary And the real men got vocabulary Vocabulary Let's rise up Who gon' rise up? Let's rise up She never had a real man till she had a revolutionary And the real men got vocabulary Vocabulary Let's rise up Who gon' rise up? Let's you thought that you could kill me, but I'm stronger Cookie be the queen and the king because I'm stronger Yes, you know me, I put in work like my father I came from the dirt, but I swear we hold them tonkas Say I protest like the boys and the flockers Oh my God, I swear you know they can't stop us I swear I go to war like my fucking grandfather Buffalo soldier up in my hand, I hold an Oscar I can sing a rap, you know me, I don't bother She never had a real man till she had a revolutionary And the real men got vocabulary Vocabulary Let's rise up Who gon' rise up? Let's rise up She never had a real man till she had a revolutionary And the real men got vocabulary Vocabulary Let's rise up Who gon' rise up? Let's rise up Look, look them in the eyes and I bleed it Sun, moon, and the star got a leader Farrakhan, when he gone, who appear? Baby cubs, little line, you the leader Hello kitty, tell that puppy he a leader Deep East, Oakland, out of meter Hella unity, hella unity Saying hella times in the mirror Let that double blow bust a flare up 
All right. Um, I want to apologize for that abrupt ending from Abdul Olubala Shakur, but his feed went out. Uh, so we left it there. And then you can find more music by Minister King X by going to his YouTube page, Cage Universal. All right, I'm going to go ahead and get started. Oh, and if you are just joining us, this is Prison Focus Radio, and I'm your host, Nube Brown. We, again, just heard from Minister King X with his new piece, New Rise, and um, the voice of Abdul Olubala Shakur, one of our freedom fighters of the historic California hunger strike, spent decades in solitary confinement, one of those uh, that was unbroken, is still unbroken, um, after 32 years of solitary confinement, uh, meant to break him, and then um, and is also still in prison um, going on. I think he's in his 40th year, maybe going on his 41st. So um, we are, of course, out here uh, shining the light on and continuing to uplift uh, this egregious uh, crime against humanity that is taking place with our people. All right, we are going to, um, I'm going to get started reading um, the last segment of, uh, or the last piece of the indictment of the state and its prison industrial slave com complex. Indictment Count 5, Conspiracy to Maintain a Domestic Torture Program, CDC small R employees have engaged in a pattern and practice of systematic torture to coerce information, suppress politically progressive ideas and attitudes, and do permanent psychological damage to targeted prisoners. CDC small R has maintained a domestic torture program in dungeon cells, strip cells, and shoe units, security housing units, for well over a century. The primary function of the program is to inflict such continuous physical and psychological torture, pain, and suffering on those subject to these units that their minds actually break. And they either submit completely to the dictates of the state, i.e. CDC small r, no matter how contrary to their interests or basic human rights those dictates may be, go mad, or in the case of those who resist indefinitely, to serve as living examples to the rest of the prisoner population of the state's absolute power over their bodies, much as crucifixion served the Romans. In the case of the, quote, dungeon cells, prisoners would be stripped naked and forced into a urine and feces-covered stone cell with no light, a hole in the floor as a toilet, no running water, and nothing else but the stench and the darkness. A bare mattress would be issued at last count and taken away again first thing in the morning, no linen or clothing were provided in these cold, dank, and filthy stone boxes because CDCR employees wanted to ensure prisoners were subject to the perpetual indignity of nakedness and could not escape through suicide. The department's regulations and state law on dungeon cells stipulated that, quote, prisoners shall not be housed for more than 10 days inside one. However, for those who maintain their dignity, sanity, and principles, characterized as defiant by staff, or depending on the level of sadism staff um, on that watch expressed, prisoners were frequently removed from the dungeon cell and placed in a holding cage for one hour on the 10th day and then put back into the dungeon cell for another 10. In the most severe use of this torture chamber, one subject, a new African revolutionary nationalist, was confined there for a record six months. The physical and psychological toll of such torture chambers is so severe, the isolation so intense, and contrary to human mental wellness, that many simply went mad. <laughs> 
The introduction of security housing units, shoes, into Old Folsom and San Quentin Adjustment Center was the precursor to California's modern torture units at Pelican Bay, Corcoran, and elsewhere. These units, in contrast to the medieval brutality of the dungeon cells, were clinically designed to break men's minds and export the informant psychosis to their communities. Oh, God. The conceptual framework for the shoe design finds its origins in a meeting of the prison wardens and social scientists held in Washington, D.C. in 1962. There, Dr. Edgar Schein delivered his findings in a speech titled Man Against Man, Brainwashing, and the concept of the modern supermax control unit was born. In addressing the group, Dr. Schein stated, I would like you to think of brainwashing not in terms of politics, ethics, or morals, but in terms of deliberate changing of human behavior and attitudes by a group of men who have relatively complete control over the environment in which the captive populace lives. Unquote. Its political intent was clear from the outset. Former warden Ralph Aaron of one of the first Supermac lockup units, Marion Supermax, stated the purpose of the shoe was to, quote, to control revolutionary attitudes in the prison system and society at large, unquote. What Dr. Shane and his cohorts provided was its function. To be effective, the new techniques he described would require a new type of environment, one which could alter the very foundation of one's perception of reality. For this, they would adopt Dr. Levinson's sensory deprivation prison unit design and a form of Skinnerian operant conditioning called, quote, learned helplessness. This last technique is a key factor in the California state domestic torture in both its validation-based indeterminate shoe confinement and debriefing process. Learned helplessness is a systemic process of conditioning designed to crystallize in the imprisoned victim's mind that he or she has no control over the regulation of his or her existence, that they are completely dependent on the state and its guards for the necessities of life, that he or she is helpless and must submit to the state's power and control in order to survive. Mind you, this is taking place in the 21st century. Because this type of forced submission runs contrary to human consciousness, a linear thought divergence occurs in, into two options, resistance or escape. The program is designed to apply maximum punitive coercion against resistance from the outset, physical removal from general population and confinement to solitary, sensory deprivation, utilization of informants, collaborative collaborators and agent provocateurs to erode trust amongst those of like circumstances, punishing uncooperative attitudes, prohibiting collective thought and expression while simultaneously employing group punishment, punitive property restrictions, arbitrary punishment, etc., etc. Those capable of indefinite resistance through ideological and political development or force of will, like victims of crucifixion left to rot on crosses during the Roman Empire, served as powerful deterrence to those of lesser psychological resistance. These less developed subjects in Shu, or those still in general population, confronted with the ever-present specter of indefinite Shu confinement, were conditioned to avoid resistance and instead explored the second option— escape. 
Through Marion Control, oh sorry, though Marion Control Unit was among the first prisons in the, the Shine Levinson Skinnerian torture system, the most infamous by far is California's premier control unit, Pelican Bay Shoe. Because one of the central functions of these new control units was to leverage torture to coerce information from its victims, Pelican Bay Shoe made its, quote, escape option clear. Parole, debrief, or die. As a result of the undue influence of the prison industrial slave complex on the legislative, political, and to a degree cultural apparatus of the state and nation, most validated shoe prisoners are serving mandatory minimums, enhanced sentences, or board of prison terms, uh, based terms, and their very confinement in the shoe is prohibitive to their parole. Quote, if you want a parole date, you probably want to think about debriefing. Unquote. This increases the psychological pressure on those already weakened by the conviction that they've been abandoned by and isolated from society, and only through submission and subservience can they be socially accepted as human beings. This form of escape, known as debriefing, in essence becoming an informant or agent of the state, is consistent with point seven, eight, and 9 of Dr. Shine's behavior modification method. 7. Exploration of opportunities. 8. Convincing prisoners they can trust no one. 9. Treating those who are willing to collaborate in far more lenient ways than those who are not. Unquote. That beatings, assaults, gladiator-style matches, and murder are also liberally employed in shoe torture units only exacerbates the attacks on the nervous equipment of those subject to indefinite solitary confinement. That indefinite or even relatively short-term solitary confinement constitutes torture is undeniable and something the U.S. and the state of California have known since the 1870s. See in re Medley. However, with lobbying efforts by guard unions like California's CCPOA and the nationwide march towards the expansion of control units, we've witnessed over the previous 30 years the clinical approach is domestic torture, Sorry, the clinical approach to domestic torture has taken an almost Auschwitz-style tone in its matter-of-fact use. Title 18 USC S2340 and UN Convention Against Torture, Article 1, Section 2, defines torture as any act by which severe pain or suffering, whether physical or mental, is intentionally inflicted on a person for such purposes as obtaining from him or her or a third person information or a confession, punishing him or her for an act he or she or a third party has committed or is suspected of having committed, or intimidating or coercing a third person, unquote. This definition is synonymous with the purpose and function of California's shoe units and supermax control units across the nation. That the U.S. has preserved for itself a legal exemption for domestic torture has no bearing on its criminal nature. Title 18, as 2340, is enforceable only outside the U.S. So any acts of torture is defined as s twenty. 340 committed within the U.S. are not crimes against, uh, are not crimes under U.S. law unless they are accompanied by severe physical injury. Torture is a crime. Coercion through torture to elicit information to further a criminal enterprise is a greater crime. Leveraging scientists, psychologists, and structural engineers to methodically strip away the minds and humanity of captive victims to transform them into active tools of the state is evil. 
conceptually intended conceptually intended for exclusive use on politically progressive prisoners like imprisoned Black Panther Party um, uh, members of American Indian Movement, whether underground, Black Guerrilla Family, Black Liberation Army members, and Puerto Rican independent groups, etc., etc. Instead, almost from the outset, the state sought to intertwine criminal prison-based organizations, street gangs, and organized crime outfits with these revolutionary formations within their criminological lexicon, characterizing all of them as gangs, or more recently, security threat groups. STGs. This, like every aspect of their domestic torture program, was a calculated measure. Here, the staff sought to criminalize legitimate revolutionary formations and political progressives through the simple turn of a phrase, a strategic act of libel and slander encoded into their very regulations on gang validation and indeterminate shoe confinement. In an instant, Anyone validated, quote, validated as a gang member by law became a gang member, no matter if they were a political prisoner or a political gangster. This served a dual purpose. It dehumanized anyone the state labeled a gang member in the eyes of the public while providing a false basis for the denial of the existence of political prisoners in America made plausible by three decades of PISC lobbying and media propaganda. This recasting of progressive political um, ideologues as gang members acts as a manufactured regulatory loophole which allows CDC small r officials to interfere with and blatantly repress the constitutional rights of these prisoners. See USC First Amendment, etc. Via threats, intimidation and coercion under color of law, and equally blatant violation of state and federal hate crime statutes. That CDC small hour has used the existence of these torture units as a means to influence public opinion in support of prison expansion and draconian sentencing laws is further evidence of the subversion of justice by the... To, um, of justice to advance the particular economic interests of CDC small r employees engaged in this racketeering enterprise. This century-long pattern practice and expansion of the use of domestic torture units and the use of systemic torture techniques to coerce information from and retaliate against political prisoners for exercising their constitutional rights, all in furtherance of, of an ongoing racketeering and racketeering enterprise violates Title 18, S1961, S1952, USC First Amendment, Eighth Amendment, and Fourteenth Amendments, Civil Code S52.1, Government Code S11135, S8.12, Penal Code S422.77, and Title 18, S2340. Indictment count number six. Conspiracy to extort, embezzle, misappropriate, and launder funds obtained via an ongoing criminal enterprise. CDC small r is engaged in a pattern and practice of extortionate money transactions relating to the collection of restitution, which is not going to victims. Retention of interest earned on prisoner trust accounts without the authorization and in most cases without the knowledge of prisoner account holders and misappropriating an additional 10% on all restitution and other transactions with the exception of canteen draws. 
As part of the annual budget, funds are allotted to CDC Small R Trust offices to conduct all financial transactions and maintain prisoner trust accounts. However, with the introduction of mandatory restitution fines and CDC Small R's voluntary collection of ever-increasing percentages from 22% onwards up to 55% of those fines from funds sent to prisoners by their family and friends outside of prison, quote, wages... Um, the Casual Killing Act stated also that there will be restitution for the labor lost from the death of their charge. Oh, my God. CDC small r has begun to unilaterally extort an additional 10% of the money of every transaction, be it a restitution fine or special purchase, ostensibly to cover, quote, transaction costs. Let me read that other thing again. The Casual Killing Act stated that there will be restitution for the, quote, labor lost from the death of their charge. I wonder if we can just dispose of people. Being that the California General Fund already allots all CDC small r facilities appropriate funding to cover all its operations, which includes transaction costs, the stated purpose of these appropriations is fictitious, and instead, CDC Small R is embezzling a percentage of the funds prisoners, friends, and families are sending them to line their pockets. Much like sheriffs did when skimming off the top of food fund, um, uh, yes, food funds for the people who are victims of convict leasing, thereby starving their charges. To be sure, this is all around um, with convict leasing, I believe. To be sure, the trust accounts for each prisoner are themselves interest-earning accounts, and the interest incurred by right should go to the prisoners themselves. Yet, since the very inception of the trust account system, CDC small r has been kicking that interest back to themselves, padding its budget to cover exorbitant overtime costs. These embezzled funds are then illegally transferred to CDC small r accounts based on the compounding interest schedule of the banks. If it is a prisoner's position that they do not want to give CDC small r 10% of their funds on each transaction, CDC small r will simply refuse to enact the transaction at all. In effect, coercing prisoners into giving up the 10% when the state has already allocated funding for that purpose. This constitutes both extortion and embezzlement. CDC small r is also the primary agent in the state's ongoing misappropriation of funds sent from friends and family to prisoners. No restitution order has been levied against these citizens, yet every time they send funds to their imprisoned loved ones who may have a restitution order, CDC small r takes 55% of it. 50% they kick to the state and 5% they keep themselves. 10% of that 50% in a scheme which not only targets the funds of friends and family of the subject prisoner, but they have no intention of using those funds for the reasons stated. CDC small r and the state claim funds appropriated from prisoners' accounts go to victims' restitution. That's in quotes. However, they do not. Instead, those funds are allotted to a cabal of special interest groups, some of them victim rights organizations, and state law enforcement agencies, not the actual victims of crimes, to be sure. There are many offenses, such as drug possession or possession of a weapon in prison, which have no victims at all for which the courts levy exorbitant restitution fines in furtherance of this racketeering enterprise. 
most victims of the crimes are most victims of crime are from the very communities that the offenders are from. And in the case of gang-related offenses, often the victim is another gang member, occasionally under some form of correctional control themselves. In most cases, none of these victims see a dime of this money. Instead, these funds remain under the state control to be used to enrich its municipalities, like CDC small r. This engagement in monetary transactions uh, in funds derived from extortion, embezzlement, and misappropriation of funds and doing so utilizing the financial mechanisms of the public trust constitutes one of the most egregious instances of state-sanctioned money laundering perhaps in U.S. history. This pattern and practice of fraudulent and illegal misappropriation, embezzlement, money laundering, and extortions constitutes an ongoing racketeering enterprise in violation of Title 18, S-1952, S-1956, S-1957, S-1960, S-1961, S-664, S-891 through 894, S-1341, S-1343, and S-1344 of the United States Code. Well, if that doesn't just enrage you, I'm not really sure what else will. But whenever you hear me or anybody else tell you that the economic system is based on the enslavement of Africans, you can see why they are so good at this um, this racketeering of embezzlement and extortion, because this is how it um, started when the, quote, um, the Emancipation Proclamation was uh, enacted. Because first, all the accounting and the insurance and all of that was developed during slavery. And then when they couldn't no longer rely on chattel slavery, um, they had to move it into um, another uh, form, which is the prison industrial slave complex. My God, this is really sick. Thank you again, um, Joka Hashima Jinsai and Abdul Olubala Shakur for this indictment of the state and its prison industrial slave complex. All right, our last move is to hear from our beloved OG Baba Shaka Atenen, who became an ancestor on April 23rd, 2022. Good evening. Our families, uh, to begin with, healing our families, our households, 
that can heal our communities. That's the only way it can be done. It can't go the other way around. You know, you can't look to uh, some outside source, some uh, redeemer or a government or some charismatic leader to, you know, help us to get over our problems. We have to do that ourselves. And we need tools to do it. And some of the things that you've mentioned so far are those tools. So um, greetings, Salamu, and right on. True indeed, brother. Uh, all I started is all, man. Um, um, but basically, started out with the um, history about Black August 18. Can you tell the masses and whether the co hosts and the listeners are um, how Black August um, was originated and what was the purpose of it? Okay. Um, the origin, the origin was. Um, it was a twofold. It was a commemoration, as we had been doing inside for years, um, of all those freedom fighters that we had lost from our midst, because we had um, we had suffered at the hands of this state, this government, for years without being able to get that message fully to the outside world, and people would would see isolated incidents, or they would see uh, uh, certain um, names pop up, and they would consider them isolated incidents, so they didn't really understand that there was a systematic uh, policy that was uh, destroying us. They, they were killing us by policy. Uh, when you hear the term uh, NHI, no humans involved. That's the way we were considered, and we were beneath that particular rule. As Africans, we were considered uh, the lowest of the low. So anything, all of the torture tactics, all of the chemical uh, weapons, uh, new, um, new tools they had for uh, controlling uh, people, they used on us first. And... As a result, we had to form um, an organ, an, an organ, um, a, a body, a unity amongst ourselves to protect ourselves from not only from the other inmates, but from the guards, from people that they brought in from the street, from, um, they brought in professional killers. They brought in professional slave breakers to deal with us. And all of these are the things that led to um, the, the, the man-child going into the Marin County Courthouse and trying to get some kind of clarity about what was going on. Not only was he trying to liberate folks, he was trying to make a platform to get the message out to the world what was going on. That was a, it was a shock kind of uh, treatment situation where the man-child was trying to stand for all of those that were gone, all of those that were, still had the boots on their necks, and all of those that had no idea what was going on. He was trying to bring that message out. So that that was, these, these are all things that led up to different situations 
that people on the street saw but didn't really understand. When they killed him, they used him as a symbol to try to destroy uh, black liberation movement in total. They wanted to send a message that this is the way they were going to deal with us in all instances. When they dragged, they tied a rope around his neck and dragged him out of that van and just just dragged him out of this, you know, with all his face on the ground. It was, they filmed it to show to the world that that's who they were. So when the next year rolls around and we're still suffering the same thing, but they've been amplified. Comrade George was the next victim of that policy, of that systematic torture, of that systematic terror. And what they intended to do was kill off everything in the adjustment center. That was the, that was the plan. They, they intended to go in there guns blazing and just kill everybody. Comrade George used himself as a way to divert them from that plan. And people didn't really understand that either. But they, they thought it was just a bunch of, uh, uh, or a select few inmates that had gone on a rampage and they killed a couple of guards and they killed a couple of inmates and they were just shaking their fists in there, hollering and stuff. But that's not, that's not it. You had, you had, a plan that had gone to its ultimate limit. The guards had, in San Quentin, were, they were the cream of, cream of the crop as far as uh, the southern-born uh, recruits, the big giants that they brought in from down south and trained to just stomp uh, black folks, stomp Africans. All of them were there. You had all of the most virulent races there. Everything was set in place. And the culmination was comrade lying face down on the yard, dead. And the San Quentin Six being charged with the murders of the inmates and the guards in the adjustment center as a way of focusing the cameras and the news media and all of that away from what actually happened. People were writing songs. Um, people were, were protesting on the streets. There's all kinds of things going on. Um, Comrade's funeral was immense. And just the funeral itself educated so many people to what was going on inside. We all endured that because for the next several years, the CDC, the California Department of Corrections, went on a rampage. We were beaten, tortured, all across the penal system in California, especially in San Quentin. In San Quentin, they were locked down for, for years. They were locked up. The only certain people got out for industries and, and different things like that. But for the most part, Africans were under the gun. And, I mean, they broke legs, arms, uh, they cracked skulls for years. And all of these things we endured. All of these things made us stronger. And all of these things 
were hidden from the public. So years later, 1978, um, Comrade Katari played football on the yard under the the death row, uh, under death row uh, tier. Uh, hit his head on a pipe and was taken to the infirmary. Knowing that they could do nothing for a subdural hematoma, this is an, a prison infirmary. They have, they have no qualified doctors. Most of the doctors that work in the penitentiary can't work on the street. That's why they're there. No, most of them are unlicensed and unqualified. So they knew before they even took him to the infirmary that there was nothing they could do, that they had to take him to an outside hospital. But because of who he was, because of the fact that he represented us, that he was our heart and soul, because of those he inspired, next in line from Comrade George, they left him laying on this gurney in the prison hospital, the prison infirmary, and let him die. They let him bleed to death. They let him just pass away. And for us, that was pretty much the final straw as far as what we could endure silently or what we could endure without trying to go to another step to let people know, to try to reach out and make people understand what they were actually doing to us. So this is what led to the formation of the Black August Organizing Committee. This is what led to the concept of Black August because uh, the man-child died in August, Comrade George died in August, Katari died in August. And these were among our more prominent prominent freedom fighters. So the formulation basically started as a concept in after Qatari died, but the final fruition, the final um, the final uh, formation was in August of 1979 when we finally formed the committee on the street with members uh, both on the street and inside uh, San Quentin Adjustment Center. And that was the beginning. And from then, the idea was to enlighten the outside world, to shine a spotlight on what was happening in there, to uh, get rid of all the lies and the cover-ups, the subterfuge and all of that, make them understand what was really happening get people in there to come and investigate. We got um, different people, Mervyn Dimely uh, came in, a lot of other people came through and did investigations about the C-10 C, uh, gas that they were using on us uh, that was illegal, even in um, military operations, but they were using it on us in concentrated uh, attacks and cell fights and stuff like that the moon gas, uh, the axe handles that they wouldn't beat you with the flat of the axe handle so it wouldn't break a bone, but um, it caused you so much pain and distress that they might as well have just, you know, uh, just put you in a meat grinder or something. So all of this was the formation. 
the actual beginning of the Black August Organizing Committee, the, the beginning of Black August. Uh, inside, we had for years uh, taken care of one another uh, as, as a collective, as a community, as far as if there was one individual that didn't have canteens, that somebody else that did would share with them to make sure that they didn't go without coffee or, or writing materials or, or whatever they needed, amps uh, or whatever that was available that you could have in a penitentiary setting. Uh, what uh, the basic concept of that was a Kena CC people like us. And it was just to make sure that we tried to uplift all of those that we could reach, all of those around us that were interested in eradicating that criminal mentality and moving forward as new Africans, as an African that would go back out to the community and be of assistance instead of a detriment to their community. You had a lot of people going back to the streets during that time, during the late 60s, early 70s. They were coming back out here and uh, just, you know, praying on the community, praying on other individuals, doing crazy stuff, and winding up right back where they came from, right back in the penitentiary. And basically, their prison file had just gone from one file cabinet to the other, and all they had to do was just move it back to the other file cabinet. It was like they went on a vacation or something, but they were right back. So Black August was about re-educating those individuals that were willing to be re-educated, that were willing to stand up, that were willing to help in um, defending the young Africans that came in off the bus and uh, got preyed on, got raped, got robbed, beaten, and all that. We, we, we formed ourselves into an entity to protect them, to protect the, the young Panthers that came in off the street as political prisoners and were immediately preyed on by the establishment. They immediately... Um, uh, tortured and, and terrorized and you know we, we tried to defend them from the other races that were sick on them. Um, people like Jaleel Mutakin who is down in New York now, uh, they all came through where we were. They all came through us in, in San Quentin and, and Tracy and all these places and we put our arms around them and protected them and made sure they survived because they were freedom fighters. They still are freedom fighters. Alright, beautiful people. I want to thank you for joining me here this morning. That is our show. If you want to hear the rest of that interview, which is over an hour long, it's actually a couple of hours, um, where uh, Shaka Atenin is talking about uh, Black August Organizing Committee. 
um, on George Jackson Radio. This took place on August 18th of 2016, so you can look for that. Also, just to get more information, if you haven't checked out George Jackson Radio, which was founded by Abdul Ulubala Shakur, um, then I suggest that you do so. Also, uh, get to the Prison Focus, uh, California Prison Focus website, make a donation, read the archives there at www.prisons.org. Same with the San Francisco Bayview. If you want to hear more about what these um, new African revolutionaries have been doing, you can see their articles um, there at www.sfbayview.com. And also keep listening to Prison Focus Radio here every Thursday at 11 a.m. here on KPOO San Francisco 89.5. Uh, one last thing, get to the GoFundMe and support uh, the family and the community of OG Babashaka. Uh, you can find it at uh, Pamela Davis Gant, who is the fundraiser. Again, GoFundMe. Please uh, come together as a community and help with that. All power to the people. Can't stop, won't stop. Get ready for work week with Steve Seltzer.